welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. First ever. First ever, coming at you from Oklahoma, we've got special guests... We've got uh, none other than T. Steez, Tyler Stark, and we've got another person named Denny who likes to milk his adult beverages. He's trying to be professional and represent himself and his company properly. Meanwhile, we're officially done with work, so we are taking action appropriately. And I apologize for anyone listening to this knock-on podcast that actually has underage kids that listen. This is not an underage podcast, possibly. Turn it off now. Yep, turn it off now. Same with the Cleared Hot crew. There's going to be adult language, adult content. We're going to have fun, and we may tell you who Santa Claus is, so (laughs) (laughs) that's that. I want to start this podcast off with Denny telling us in his own words... How his hunt went yesterday. Slide that microphone over. There we go. Right here. Yeah, you can get on. Yeah, uh, put your teeth on both sides. (laughs) That's as far as we go. Pretty phenomenal hunt yesterday, I must say. Uh, Showed up at camp uh, with a brand new uh, Ruger Precision Rifle that my kids bought me for my birthday in August. I somehow managed to rip the tags off of it, uh, figure out how to put the bolt in, and then luckily there was a Navy SEAL here who came and sighted it in for me. Uh, the sighting in you process. You sighted it in for yourself. You shot the first two rounds. I shot the second two, and then we were done. Yeah. Uh, I'll add a little bit of color. I shot the first shot. Uh, there was a 4 by 8 piece of cardboard. I somehow managed to tick the top. Andy made three adjustments to the gun and goes, hey, let me shoot it real quick. He had smeared a about a quarter size piece of mud on the cardboard, <laughs> and he proceeded to shoot twice. And I said, Andy, I don't think you're on the cardboard. He said, really? I, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> so he, he walks the, the 100 yards up there. I'm on crutches because I'm a gimp right now. I had knee surgery about seven weeks ago. He proceeds to pull the cardboard, all eight foot of it, back to me and show me the two holes that were stacked on top of each other inside this quarter-sized circle. So <laughs> needless to say, I, I, I had a brand new, fully uh, sighted-in gun at 100 yards. And uh, then we decided to go hunting. Uh, hunting consisted of, of uh, these two, John driving a, a two-seater buggy, me in the passenger seat with with my Creedmoor mounted on the on the front of it, and uh, Andy up top uh, playing uh, sight man up in the turret <laughs> of the buggy, looking out for for blackbacks in the high grass. Uh, we we managed to find some hogs about midday. Uh, no, it was the end. Of, oh yeah, we did find them midday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. we found some midday. There there was one shot before the kill. Um, <laughs> there was almost a second shot. It was just freaking <laughs> me out. <laughs> so I'm gonna take over this point and fill you guys in on what happened because it was Dudley up front, Denny in the middle, Tyler was in there somewhere as well. I was in the back. My man Danny throws the rifle over a barbed wire fence to stabilize, which I'm gonna call a controversial. 
approach wherever you are because barbed wire stings both directions. Levels that thing out. What do you think we were from those hogs, Dud? 75, 80? We were approximately um, 70 yards. yards. We were 70 yards further than what I could have been if Denny would have listened. I'm going to support that. Dudley was I'm like, Dudley was coaching. We need to get closer. Denny was like, hey, fuck you. I got them in my sights. <laughs> so Denny had him in his sights. I hear the rifle go off. Super tough to tell because I was basically plugging my ears instead of looking through my binos. Everything's scattered. And then Denny goes, I've got him in my sights again. And both Dudley and I whip our binos up and go, what are you talking about? <laughs> There's literally a vacant road. With There's a road. Blood track in the middle of it. With a dark bush. And Dudley goes, whatever you're aiming at, don't shoot. <laughs> pig no pig i'm I'm just going i don't see a pig i do not see a hog they're black i see basically orange grass like that's don't do it so now you get to take it over again denny well uh what they failed to share was uh we got out of the vehicle they're at about 150 yards i was completely content with with poking them at 150 yards being that i'm on crutches meanwhile which he didn't have with him yeah Dudley starts yelling, get on my back, get on my back. (laughs) And for one second, I thought about it until I looked over my shoulder and saw Andy reaching for his phone, giggling the whole time. (laughs) I said, I'm not letting this seven foot two guy carry me to go shoot my log. I would have thrown you on my back like Frodo, dude. I would have taken you right in for the perfect shot. So... I'm 5'2 on a good day. He's 7'2. His stride covers four of mine. Needless to say, I'm hopping on one leg. He starts running, and he's yelling, get on my hip, get on my hip. I I couldn't keep up with him for the first 10 seconds. He already had 20 yards on me. By the time we got there, he closed the distance to about 75 yards. I'm still like 120 yards back. So that's why I decided to to post up on, on the fence. Uh my first shot with my new gun, uh, needless to say, didn't hit the mark. But uh, about an hour later, we, we cruised around and uh, we found some more hogs. Uh, Dudley starts yelling, I see a big one. I see a big one. We pull over. We jump out. This time, we only run about 30 yards. Once again, I got yelled at by Dudley because I somehow wasn't, wasn't right behind him. I drifted a little bit to the left, but uh, got down in the prone position. Uh, put it on him, and then... Uh, wait, wait, wait. Whoa. <laughs> you did not put it on him. Well, I was I was going to share Andy's coaching tips. No, I'm going to let Andy step in here, and then he'll hand the mic back. One second. Asterix to the podcast. He did not put it right on him. I believe the words out of his mouth were, where are they in relationship to that square thing? <laughs> The square thing was a barrel hanging from a tree full of corn. The hogs were approximately 18 inches underneath them. <laughs> but what... If you would have smoked that barrel, I would have. that would have been the funniest thing I've ever had happen. I would have retired from hunting on the spot having been... My cup would have been completely full. I would have never wanted to hunt again because if you can smoke a black oil barrel... <laughs> But here's what I saw in you, Denny, is you were, remember we, we went to go sight in at the range. I was talking to you about some some basic marksmanship stuff. 
One of them is natural point of aim, meaning if you're laying on top of your rifle and you close your eyes and you take a few breaths, when you open your eyes, what you're pointing at is your natural point of aim. So you don't have to fight the rifle anymore. It actually becomes like a part of who you are as opposed to like maybe leaning really far over your left or your right hand side and you have to fight the rifle. So I looked down because I was behind Dudley and I saw you with your cheek on the buttstock moving your head all over the place, which I've seen many, many times. And what that means is you can't find your cheek weld, which is the spot on your cheek that has to contact the rifle every time. So what you were probably doing, and I'm going to make an assumption, is you were chasing a little window inside of your scope, if you could even see it at all, because you didn't know where to put your cheek. And what was getting you in that moment is that you were on 24 power, and if you backed it off a little bit and opened your world up, you would have seen more than the big square thing, which you thought was a ferocious hog getting ready to attack you. <laughs> it was a 800-pound boar, which, but directly underneath that were 200-pound boars. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, so that's why I said I grabbed it for you and dialed it back so you could see, so you can adjust your sight, and then you dial it back in. So... All I'm going to say is let's not pretend like you just put it on him. <laughs> let's yeah, get back, uh, the, d- let's d- get back d- to the story. D- Dudley did offer a little bit of advice. As you were coaching me through, telling me to grab my bicep, squeeze my bicep, press forward to get a good solid mount, Dudley really helped out too and goes, Denny, this isn't, I was going to say effing Lamaze no, class. this is the internet. You can say <laughs> Say, this isn't fucking Lamaze classes. <laughs> Stop breathing so heavy. <laughs> Sound like you're going to deliver about a nine pounder. (laughs) I was like, geez, dude. I did take one deep breath, uh, unfogged my glasses because I was breathing a little bit too heavy. And then uh, then I did squeeze the trigger. And luckily we connected. I want to put one thing out. So if you're breathing out of your mouth, do you understand what you have to do to fog your glasses? You got to go massive underbite. You bulldogged it. He did. Hey, the, well, the story ends with me putting down a boar. Let's be honest. Yeah, there. it was nice. Yeah. Well done. It was, and actually, we just ate it. Mm-hmm. This was yours. Did you know that? Oh, was it really? Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so yeah, even though most people were maybe assuming they would listen to an archery podcast, not so. Um, starts out with big big gun more story. more back in my wheelhouse i would say yeah i know that's kind of cool well denny actually really wanted to shoot with a bow here but obviously you had a you had a scary surgery on your leg you sent me pictures and it was ferocious but the one thing i do want to say which is kind of wow that's amazing um tim just walked in with the food off the trigger it's re- looking ridiculous but um you know, I set up several feeders on this place just because no one's been here for months and months. We wanted to try to like get some hogs coming on a somewhat of a pattern. But literally last night, that feeder that we stocked in on, it was a last minute resort because we hadn't seen anything until we saw something midday. We didn't see anything for hours. We covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I mean, we we literally probably, I bet you we drove in total yesterday, maybe eight to 9,000 acres. I bet, wow. I bet we covered. And we ended up going by one of these feeders, which it actually was um, quite a while after it had gone off. And 
sure enough, I had a camera there and for seven days there wasn't a single thing at that feeder and it just so happened that the one time that it went off, we were cruising by and luckily I saw that one and we went in. But uh, either way, it was an amazing shot and it was super fun. I mean, honestly, it was it was really fun for me. I did want you on my back though, <laughs> like thinking this, I kind of sure. want to just... I, I literally couldn't reach for my phone. I think if I had slowed down and not been reaching for my phone, he might have done it. <laughs> I was almost going to just throw... I, if I wasn't worried about him actually hurting himself, but I was thinking, for sure I can throw him on and do 150 yards at a pretty good clip for him. I yeah. mean, I might be winded, but I thought the way the wind was and where they were and the cover we had, I thought... This is going to be a 30-yard opportunity, but... you talking about the one where he took the successful shot? No, the, the non-successful. The yeah. yeah, I mean, that one... I mean, I was, I was impressed by his ability to cover the ground that he did, but it, I'm not going to lie. In my mind, I was thinking it looked like a pirate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought I was getting chased by Blackbeard. Yeah. Because I was like, okay, With a black rifle. Yeah, he's 50 yards behind me. He's got one straight leg. He's, like, posting up on it and swinging the other leg, like, out wide. To he like, wouldn't give me the gun either. I was like, <laughs> dude, Denny, give me the gun. I just want to help you out. Good for him. He's, yeah. I mean, what's funny is Denny is actually a hardcore sucker. How many – before you had your leg cut in half – how many miles would you do you think you would run a week? Uh, when I'm training, I run I run between 100 120 oh, per week. week. Yeah. You run with Hobie, don't you? <laughs> I do. I've run, so run a lot with fish. Hobie. He's a runner. Yeah. I uh, I live in Park City. It, f- funny enough, um, I've ran a lot of marathons and uh, a couple years ago, <clears throat> I met some guys out on the trail and we went for a run and come to find out they were world-class trail runners and uh they said you know where do you usually run out here i said oh, i usually run the roads and they looked at me they go are, are you kidding me you live in park city utah it's like people vacation out here to trail run and you run on the roads what is wrong with you they said come for come for a run with us and and we ended up going on like a six seven eight mile run and these guys were kind of built like me short big quads really kind of kind of muscular guys and pure studs I, mainly they were built studs, a lot for like sure. you then i was gonna say and, are you talking about yourself with the <laughs> yeah, yeah. five two very manly ha- hammering quads <laughs> chiseled steel butt cheeks that literally like <laughs> make guys turn around and look twice okay this is denny and so they sure they taught me to run distance and uh I enjoyed it, and then I, I just really got into trail running. And, and when you're out there and, and you're running peak tops, you see a ton of wildlife. I, I ran up the ass end of a bull one time. I, I literally, the first thing I saw were the bull's testicles. The second thing I saw were, were uh, <laughs> each ends of his rack. And my dumbass, I'm six, seven, eight yards away. I first thing I do is reach down and, and grab my phone. It's just just barely light enough to to know that that it's a big old elk and those are testicles in my face and uh <laughs> so as soon as i do that, that kind of a bull that not, thing not like a around. longhorn yeah you're talking a bull elk in park this city it's a big bull elk where in park city were you i was on uh what's called the uh gosh uh begins with a j jones jack 
Samsonite. Uh, it's right up where you shot your Swanson. Your bowl, to was be perfectly it by, honest. Swanson. Was it by the Olympic Training Center? It was. It was just up above the Olympic Training Center. Well, Rob's Trail. Rob's Trail. Oh yeah. Rob's. It doesn't really down. begin with a J, but it's. Rob's I don't think trail. they allow hunting there, but um, I don't know. They do. Some, they do. Public. Okay, it's public hunting. It sounded like a Tommy Boy story for like can't what was it can't judge a bull's ass by what the butcher says or I thought that's where you're going with that. You literally ran up to bull's balls. I did. I turned around and, and ran back down and uh, yeah, fall tra- trail running in the fall is a little rough. Uh, if you're gonna go out and run 25, 30, 35 miles, you have to start early. Uh, you have to start before sun up with a headlamp. And uh, <laughs> why would you ever do that? <laughs> you can you can find yourself in in front of some things that you didn't realize were were out there. So it's fun though. I enjoy it. Uh, gets you in touch with nature. Allows you to scout a little bit. It's fun. You know, it's <coughs> just continually amazing about just our lifestyle and who we meet and. It's just crazy. When I first met you, Denny, um, which was, was it a year, about a year ago? Tyler will remember. Oh, Probably about a year that. ago. Um, I went out to Salt Lake and wanted to visit Traeger headquarters. And, you know, we started talking and you're, you're, you're one of those people where you have to drag out of you the things that you do. And then you also make me realize I shouldn't even talk about my workouts or what I do for conditioning because you do stuff without even thinking about, you do it because that you just absolutely love it and you're passionate about it. And you're running with three guys that I don't even know their names, but they're doing 10 times more than most of the people that I know that do that. And you know, that's that same type of philosophy and mentality is actually one of the reasons why I have a very hard time um, when people ask me to be a keynote speaker at, um, like wild game banquets or, um, you know, I've been asked to, to do stuff for the Iowa bow hunters or, you know, recently I've been asked to do something for the Mississippi bow hunters association. And in my mind, I'm thinking as I'm sitting there talking about stuff that I've done, which isn't totally comfortable for me, I know looking out there, there's probably a handful or maybe more people that are like you that are actually probably living way more of a more dedicated and hardcore lifestyle to certain aspects of things that I'm passionate about, but just never even talk about it. So, I mean, that's, that's the one thing I'm sitting there, you know, giving a seminar on deer hunting and I'm thinking how many people in here have literally like a Walmart garden shed that have, horns bigger than anything i've ever shot just stacked up in there and they're just sitting back here in the back not saying a thing and i don't know it's like those are the those are the those are literally the little gems that are you know maybe you just have to uncover them enough and then you just have this uh totally cool relationship and understanding and actually it's honestly it was motivational um 
you're motivational just from your work ethic. And I mean, you are a little bit older than me, a little bit shorter than me. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> but, but I mean, dude, I actually feel like I make a decent adult beverage. But then you roll in with a freaking pelican case just to mix old fashions. Yeah, I, I take no no credit for my running prowess. Uh, let, let's be clear. I, I run for one reason. Uh, I started running years ago to, to clear my head, uh, a little stress at work, go for a run, feel better. I used to run three miles to clear my head. Now I have to run 25 or 30. <laughs> Clearly I have issues. So, I'm going to say that trend might not be sustainable. <laughs> that said, I will take credit for making a decent cocktail. Because that's the other way to clear your head. I love it. That's amazing. Tyler, you want to get in on this? I'm going to add to what you said. The, what? Most, the most dangerous people I've ever met in my life are not the ones who talk about the things that they do, but the ones that sit in the back of the room very quietly and listen to everybody else talk about the things that they do on a daily basis. And I think one of the most grounding things that people can do is to realize that no matter how good you are, there's somebody out there that's better. There is. And accept that. And if Mm -hmm. you can accept that, it's very humbling and then you can start the journey towards maybe trying to knock that person off of their pedestal. Maybe you don't, but seriously, right? You could. If you, but if you don't think that, and you think you're the best person in the world, you're going to get your teeth kicked in in the most inopportune moment for you mm-hmm. and the most opportune moment for that person. There's always somebody who's better. The second you think you have mastered, in my opinion, I'll go back to base jumping. Uh, wingsuit base jumping. The second that you think you have it all dialed in and you know everything, you need to retire that day or you're going to die. Yep. Because that attitude is the one that's going to put you in the grave. It's the people that are hungry, that are learning, that accept every piece of information. They get better. It's the a, humility. It's a dangerous spot to be in yeah. to think you're the best in the world. And it's always easier, I've found, to chase others than have people chasing you. Yep. Well, I like chasing. I, I just had a shitty reality check. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was just thinking seriously. The most like, I run in a week is eighty to a hundred miles. I claimed a hundred to a hundred and twenty. I don't. Uh, during during a race period, uh, I'll run thirty five on a Saturday, twenty on a Wednesday, and anywhere from ten to eighteen four more days a week. So uh, so I think clearly, I, I think I exaggerated a tiny bit. Yeah, Denny's not all that, Andy. Let's go back to a real runner over here. Yeah, I was going to say my weekly mileage is between 102 and, this, and 10. But this is precise. It's between zero miles <laughs> and one. <laughs> I mean, I can be pretty precise most of the time. It's a round number, meaning zero, zero dot. You got zero, a quarter zero. mile with me today. Well,. I didn't eighth, look back. Did eighth. You? I was like, come on, dude. You've yelled at me so many times to stay on your hip that I know to stay on your hip. <laughs> You're actually really good at it. You kind of scrape my shoe, which I appreciate. I literally try loud. to hide myself, but I'm like, okay, here's the deal. Dudley's going to turn around and stay right behind me. So if I can't see the animal, but I can see his shoulder blades, I'm doing a good job. That's a good way to do it, too. That's a good stay lesson. Stay on my hip should be your new mantra. We, we could. Hashtag stay on my hip. Stay on my hip. You got my six? 
You better. Or, or don't. Or you're getting yelled you at. Could, or you could hashtag Torsten, <laughs> which is make lateral moves, which I don't know a damn thing, but here's the deal. I know it's harder to see movements that are straight at you in the vertical plane than the ones that are in the horizontal. If you move horizontally and people are looking at you, you're you're proper screwed. The problem is most of the things that we're pursuing see in black and white. So if you see in black and white, you know, well, here's a question if, for you. How do they know that? How do they, how do they I know that? I have no idea. I'm just basing off scientists. Uh, and I, Harry tells me stuff about chemistry and biology. I have no idea if it's true, but it sure sounds good. But how do people know that pigs can see in black and white, given that obviously you can't have a conversation with a pig? Don't they dissect eyeballs? Yeah, but is there something in it that can tell you whether or not they can? Yeah. <laughs> mm. Hashtag. No, I'm, I'm actually des- like I, I, I believe that they can only see in black and white. Obviously, their vision isn't that good because we can get very close to them. But I'm curious as to how they know whether or not an animal can see in color or black and white. I've heard that animals that actually have colors can see in colors, but animals that are actually in like two dimensional colors, like browns, whites, or gray or blacks, actually see in just black or white. Like animals that have really attractive colors, their colors. Oh, oh. my goodness, Tim! We're gonna need a picture to accompany the podcast. Thank you, Tim. This is ridiculous. We just got some amazing Snake River Farms T-bones served with a. I don't know. What do you call that? Asparagus. 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 More than one. Amazing. So, Dudley, which animal that you know of has the best vision? Turkeys. How good? 270 degrees. But that's that's field of 20, view. I think it's 20 times the human eye in full color. Is it really? At 270 degrees? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to Google it just in case I know. What would be the second best you know? Um, I would say antelope for seeing in distance. Mm-hmm. Movement and distance is amazing. Um, okay, so... Wait, I was wrong. So it says here um, turkeys can see in color, sizes, and shapes. Uh, wild turkeys see in full color and have excellent daytime vision. That is three times better than human eyesight. So it's equivalent to you having a pair of 3X binoculars on, but the difference is it covers 270 degrees in full color, three times better. So when you hunt turkeys, which I have never done, mm-hmm. how do you do that? Uh, I do it in a blind mainly. But I don't know. My buddy Mike Slinkard from Hex guarantees me that that the way that turkeys actually see in a magnetic field, that it's blocked when you're using a Hex suit. And he's been shooting turkeys out of a lawn chair in a wide open field with a bow. They see in a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. A lot like it's a it's actually proven based on science that they um, research for migratory birds that actually you know the way they're not really describing it right but um, they do see a magnetic field and they see a grid which is a lot of how they learn to navigate and fly south for the winter fly north um, so yeah there's a lot of science been done about turkeys having the same type of eyesight to where you know if you eliminate that electronic field that it it changes how they actually vi- how they actually view you 
Whoa. Side dish. Jeez. Tim was taking notes. Tim was taking some serious notes here, people. We just got served some amazing chow. It looks good. I'm going to take a picture. I am. (laughs) Tyler, you need to jump in here. I know. Tyler hasn't said a damn word. Yeah, you need to. I'm going to move over. Tyler's going to move in. I'm going to eat. And uh, why don't you keep quiz Tyler about his bow hunting skills. All right, let's do this. He's a uh, current world champion, actually. We'll add that. <laughs> T-Steez. Here you go. Oh, How'd you get into bow hunting? Let's go all the way back. How did I get into bow hunting? Well, yeah. I, I grew up in Wisconsin, liked to hunt, shotgun rifle, uh, mostly bird hunting. What do you hunt with the shotgun? Because I've heard of people hunting deer with the shotgun. I, that doesn't in, make sense to me. Yeah, in the Midwest you do, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very common. So you're talking slugs, slugs, obviously. obviously. Yep, yep. In this specific season for so it. twenty to thirty yards. We talking or what are we talking here? Yeah, thirty forty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Yep. Like yeah. Why would you use a shotgun instead of a rifle? Not because you can't. You literally cannot use a rifle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and Denny can speak to it more. I mean, growing up in upstate New York, there's shotgun and bow hunting counties only, and so you don't even have a rifle at your disposal. To totally diverge, where does that rule come from? Honestly, I can't speak Space. to that. I'm guessing it's density of population. Yeah. Um, like That's in upstate point. New York, uh, anything really west of the Hudson Valley, west of the Adirondacks, we were shotgun only or, or even bow hunting only. Um, one of my favorite tree stands was behind a water tower where w- once the leaves were down, I could watch the entire high school f- football game and hear the announcer from that spot, but it was a phenomenal bow hunting spot. Um, it, it just really comes down to population density. They, they don't want people shooting long-range rifles in, in areas with a lot of houses. All right. I suppose I can understand that. Yeah. Well, anyways, I started working at Traeger, met this guy, and I was like, I should buy a bow. That's basically how I started. How'd you meet this guy? Uh, mutual friend. Lucky I get to meet a lot of nice people and have the pleasure to work with some great people over the years. And so one of the, my buddies that used to work at Under Armour introduced us. Okay. We actually don't know if he really exists. He may come up. He may just show up at 1 a.m. this yeah, morning. Who knows? Or he may show up in eight days. No. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to ask who this person is. <laughs> You'll love him. So you met, so you met Dud. Similar to myself, I thought I, I'm basically in my backyard. Dude, at 20 yards, I was laying it down. I could pretty much <laughs> smoke a slat on my uh, plastic fence anytime I wanted to. I could take that thing down. Then I send Dudley pictures. He's like, yeah, that's okay. We're going to work on some stuff. So let me guess. You meet him, and you're like, oh, my God. I don't know anything. No, we did. I mean, I showed up to his place in Iowa about a year ago, and uh, we built my bow, and we literally sat in his at his farm and started the basics. I mean, we were shooting yeah. blank bales. I, I learned literally all the terminology about it, and we sat there. I Actually, I sat there with a, what do you call it, the right release or whatever. Mm-hmm. I sat there probably for the first eight hours that I was there just drawing on a string attached That's, to a handle. So, Dudley, can you explain the right release? Because I actually don't know what it is. Tyler can explain it. It's basically a bow grip, a little mm-hmm. handle. With, with a, a string, With right? a string attached to it. I mean, obviously, there's no tension to it, but you pull back with your release, and you just practice working through your draw cycle. Yeah, totally screwed me on that. <laughs> he, he didn't let <laughs> me shoot a live arrow literally for eight hours. Yeah, I, I remember Tyler texting me saying, I, I pulled this thing back a thousand times and you won't let me hold my bow yet. <laughs> you son of a bitch, Dudley, you cheated me. Here's, um, well, here's the truth to that. You actually were... 
slotted to shoot a right release for a little while at the first thing in the morning the day that when you were you were by me for a day and a half yeah one and one I half days i had planned a half a day of that for you but do you remember when i actually came out for us to shoot yeah out by your hot tub and what time was that early no it wasn't no it was 10 yeah that's right <laughs> what happened the night before that we sat around, we discussed many leather-bound books, Socrates, Moby Dick. Um, i trying to think of other things that Torsten said earlier. <laughs> no, we sat around the fire, and we it was awesome. Like I said, we, we had met each other at the SHOT Show, but I was... I, I actually wanted to get to know you, and Sharon wanted to get to know you. So, I mean, we were like... We started drinking we both, wine over your cutting table in your kitchen. Yeah, we started with that, and we... We literally, neither one of us really talked about either one of our fields. We just got to know one another. And I remember, I remember the wine, but then the next day there was a lot of other evidence around that it had gone much further. Smoked balls and whiskey and yeah, there was a lot. (laughs) We, yeah, we were. Do you remember what we drank? Yeah. It was a lot. (laughs) Um, So I didn't feel too good the next day and. I kind of thought, you know, that canceled my right release. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm. I just jumped straight in. Let's just program. see if this guy well, can hit something. We, you built the bell for me first, and I was working uh, yeah. building arrows. That's where it started. But you had already had a foundation, and what's most important is, um, I want to say right now, my foundation was YouTube videos, watching you shoot. That okay, was, well, that that, was that helped because that's essentially all I look for, and I was trying to really with any student i try to establish one does this new thing make them nervous um tyler literally had he had never even pulled a bow i don't i don't think he had ever pulled it back uh probably boy scouts shooting a recurve it's been a long time but yeah he never had pulled a recurve so i'm just like okay and honestly if you hand someone a handheld release they have a peep site they have a sight you almost just have to go back to because there's so many things for them to think about I want to go back to what's most important for me, and that's the actual process of, you know, coming to an anchor point, feeling secure, letting off the safety, and then pulling through the shot or putting your finger to the trigger and pulling through a shot. And with Tyler, I felt like if I was going to talk about a peep sight, centering your pins and your peep, leveling your bow, I felt like I was almost going to overwhelm him with too much information at one time. So I just really wanted to go to the, really what was most important and critical about the process was this is how you come to full draw. This is how you should feel on your face. And then this is how you activate your release. And I wanted to take away every other possible distraction or element. And once I realized that he was doing that comfortably and he was not you know, I can see it that he's not really worried about or thinking about other things. Then we move on to the next step, which was, okay, you know, let's try this on a bow and let's try pulling your bow back and, and drawing it back. Because a lot of people that try archery for the first time, truthfully, most archery shops, they don't want to spend an hour or two hours with you teaching you this because the reality is you're buying a bow at the price they put it on, which is a standard markup, and depending, especially if you don't buy very many accessories that are high-end accessories, 
really the majority of their margin is on accessories. So in the end, let's just say you go and buy a brand new bow and this dealer's making 150 bucks on you. If he's got to spend two hours with you really teaching you the proper way to shoot, if you ever, ever had to come back and have something fixed on that bow, which might take another hour of his time, he's literally sold that bow at a break-even point. Yeah. So... That's on his, why on his hourly basis. Yeah. Yeah. That's why, you know, if you really want to learn archery, you're almost like, I want to buy this, but what, what do I need to do to have undivided individual time to teach me how to shoot it? Because a lot of guys will say, yeah, if you buy the whole thing, I'll take you in the range. I'll teach you how to shoot. If they t take you in the range and they get your bow sighted in at 20 yards, that is their version of teaching you how to shoot. But you really need to take it a step further and that's what i try to do with tyler's take it one step further um or maybe a few steps further and i really wanted to make sure that he learned something to where which i think this weekend is a pretty good example if you get busy and you don't persistently shoot all the time when you do pick it up you can just say okay i know i haven't shot in a while i know i'm I know I really haven't prepared for this, but what are those basics? Like, what are those key things that John told me that I just need to do? And honestly, with Torsten, with the thing that he missed, he just spazzed out and threw it all out of the window. But in the end, I think... You know what I love about him, though? 100% honest yeah. about what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, can I have one thing there? <clears throat> um, I'm the father of four boys, and you hit on something special. When I was growing up, my dad took me down. I grew up in upstate New York, very close to Pennsylvania. Uh, I'll never forget, we went down to Easton, Pennsylvania, and there's a great bow hunting store down there. And the guy spent half a day with us. He, wow. he, he really did. Um, but then once we got home, my dad took me out and, and, and we went to the range or we shot 3D two, three days a week. And, you know, I, I hope that. All the dads out there, I know it's time consuming, and, and trust me, I, I'm probably the the worst at fault on this one. But taking the time to get your kids out, my dad instilled bow hunting in me um, from the time I was 10 years old. He dragged me out. Well, he willing, I, I went completely willingly. Um, I crawled into a tree stand, and I hunted 30, 40 days a year until I was in my mid 20s, and. Uh, that all came when I was eight, nine, ten years old, and my dad would go shoot, and I had a choice to stay home with my mom and, and my brothers and sisters, or I could go and, and shoot 3D with my dad. And I remember the the first bear uh, compound bow that, that he bought me, and we went and shot that all the time. I remember the first good quality setup that I got, and... Uh, it was just time well spent with my dad, and I hope that that's being being carried down because, to, to your point, it, it's a it's a tough sport to get into. The learning curve is steep at first, but once you get them hooked, I, I think they're they're hooked for life, and they're and they're hunters for life. I was, I mean, honestly, what you just said was pretty parallel to to my choices. Um, a lot of people know my archery story based on like that short film that Hoyt did about me where I started bow hunting and then I kind of didn't bow hunt for a long time 
or I bow I really I bow hunted about one week out, out of every year, mainly during Thanksgiving uh, break. I would hunt down in Mississippi with my uncle Kenny. And other than that, I was really into sports. Um, but there was also a small window within that that I haven't talked about a lot, which was where my dad took me out because my dad actually shot archery. He didn't like to hunt, but my dad shot archery. And when I first started, we belonged to an archery club in um, just outside of Chicago uh, called Fox Valley Archers. What do you mean he didn't like to hunt, but he liked to shoot archery? So he'd like to shoot at targets? Yeah, he liked, he actually liked the precision of shooting. And I think he liked archery and he liked the people that were involved with archery. But I think just, I'm not sure. I've never really dug deep into it, but I just don't think that, I think from his background from what he experienced when he was in vietnam all those years i don't think that he just i don't think that he really yeah no i understand exactly i don't why. think that he yeah. likes that aspect but he does like the aspect of precision and marksmanship and discipline shooting. he really enjoys that but when i started i remember there actually were not 3d targets yet our club our club had two shoots a year that they would each member would actually make um, a target out of foam and then uh, they would put wires for like kill zones on the targets and then you would go and twice a year we would have these they were kind of the original 3d shoots and maybe they had started at other clubs around the world first i guess i wasn't into it enough to know but you know each member each member's family they would have six months to like make some type of a target out of foam and some people got really into it and made like very realistic um (laughs) targets and you would go and you would shoot my club was fox valley archers it was um just outside of Cary, illinois and uh there's there's a lot of people from that area, like Rick Carone was from that area, actually, right there at Fox Valley Archers. And um, we would shoot these targets that were, they weren't necessarily 3D targets, but they were the beginning of 3D targets. And I shot those with my dad, and honestly, I wasn't good at it. I probably could say, I mean, it was before I was, I think it was maybe even before I was really into archery. But like you said, Denny, it was I was faced with, okay, you can go with mom and she's going shopping all day, or you can go with me and I'm going to go to the archery range and you're going to follow me around and I'm going to shoot this archery course and every now and then I'm going to give you my bow and let you try to shoot at a target too. And uh, and how many times did, did you and your dad have to walk behind, hang, hang your bow up on the target, walk behind searching for one of your arrows that you... Overshot, For me, is, almost uh, every time. And really, um, <coughs> what got me into 3D archery and professional archery was there was a window of time to where our club made these targets up until I, I think I remember being about 11 or 12. But then we ended up moving, and I had this kind of separation from archery for about four to five years, which is probably when real 3D targets were being made. And uh, I 
I had a bow, but I didn't really shoot it. I was really into football. I was, you know, kind of really just pursuing. I really wanted to play college football. And then I was pretty much set to play college football and then kind of ended up having to go into some rehab uh, for my knee. And during that time, I remember I passed this little uh, this little sign on the side of the road that said archery shoot. And I ended up thinking, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And I just drove about five miles past that sign, grabbed my bow, and then went back to it. And it was a proper archery shoot. Like in that five-year window, things changed a lot. It wasn't people making targets out of house insulation foam that they glued together in panels and used a wire to cut it in the shape of a 2D silhouette. Um, there were proper targets made by McKenzie or Delta and there were scoring rings. And I remember I went out and I had my, uh, trying to think what the name of that quiver was. I had a plastic quiver. I'm trying to think of what the name of that thing was. Quickie? Corpin. Quickie. Yeah. It was a quickie, quickie quiver. Yeah. Um, yeah, I shot a, I had an old golden eagle bow with wooden limbs and I went out and <clears throat> shot this thing and halfway through I lost all my arrows and it was honestly during that five-year period and everything happens for a reason but during that five-year period i went from a time of going out with my dad to this 3d archery course where i missed targets all the time and i didn't even think about it you literally shot and you're like i got that like you were like i got it and i mean you were it's not like you were saying holy crap i missed it it was complete polar opposite if you hit it, it was a big thing because you know there weren't like there weren't very many sight like we didn't have sights and stuff like that. I remember we got a kisser button like that was a big deal. They're like, yeah, you got this kisser button. Okay, well, still don't have sights, so this kisser button's not worth the crap. <laughs> um, but fast forward four or five years later, well, now I've been in sports. There were no participation awards. There were no. It was flat out. Either you were good enough to make the team or you weren't on the team. And I was, I learned how to be competitive and I just had this drive. And failure meant that you weren't going to be, you weren't good enough for that sport. Yeah, you weren't going to start. You were sitting on the sidelines. So when I went to that 3D shoot and missed a bunch of targets and lost a bunch of arrows, I still had several targets left to shoot. So I actually got in my car. Um, it was in Wilmot, Wisconsin. You know where that's oh, yeah. at, which is crazy. Um, which is a ski hill I used to work at. Wilmot yeah, which I literally flipped burgers uh, in order to get free ski passes because I skied moguls back in the day. Um, which is very weird because Denny sitting here worked for Burton for a long time, and I was a big case. Did you really, you son of a bitch? <laughs> Burton snowboards. And K2 snowboards before that. Yeah. yeah. I was a big We're have K2, to talk. K2 skier <laughs> fan. But anyway, um, I drove up to Wilmot, Wisconsin, and that's where one of the very first Gander Mountains were. And uh, I went to Gander Mountain and bought some arrows just so that I could go back and finish that course. Oh, and awesome. I was pathetic at it. And if it weren't for me failing so bad on that, 3d course i probably wouldn't be where i'm at in archery because 
I went there and was so bad, and because I had succeeded in everything else, I just had this internal drive that I had to at least learn. Even if I didn't want to do it forever, I had to at least be good enough to where I could live with myself and like go redeem myself at some point, and then at least back out and say, okay, um, everyone knows that I don't suck at this right now, right? But now I'm going to go and do football again. Like that was kind of my original plan. But then real quickly, I ended up just feeling really comfortable and natural with it. Hey, I'd love to go back to Tyler's story. Um, Tyler, sure, you had a pretty amazing trip when, when Dudley taught you how to pull a bow back for the first time. You, you not only went out there, drew a bow back for the first time, but he taught you at his, at his own personal house, his, his farm, and then to get hunting and, and share a little bit about how, how you made out. Yeah, I mean, to Dud's point, I mean, it, it was a, it was a pretty crazy trip, and I started from the very beginning in the basics, and I probably wouldn't change that for the world just because it's an advantage. Yeah, I would it is. Say. You know, I haven't shot. I had a daughter six months ago, back in August, and I hadn't shot since uh, her birth, and uh, I came back out here today, and I was I was feeling comfortable at twenty thirty five yards uh, just out here in front of the lodge uh, shooting. I got some good groupings. Unfortunately, when you shoot next to Dudley, there's some nerves that come into play, and especially when you're trying to stay on his hip all the time. What are you talking about? So you're saying, let me, let I me, did miss. Hold on, Tyler. Let me try to understand this. So if you're trying to shoot a bow next to a world-class bow shooter, are you saying there is some implied pressure? Uh, that's an understatement, yeah. <laughs> For sure, especially when you're getting harped on to stay on your hip and make sure you pick up your feet. And, you know, I'm trying to walk as quietly as I can and as fast as I can at the You know same what he tells me every time right before? He's like, hey, make a good shot. Yep. Like, God damn it. I'm trying to every time. <laughs> Man. <laughs> I, I would have had I a great shot. A he got me in one, range. But it happens. He, he got me in range, but we probably, we probably sprinted a mile and a half out to those <laughs> things. And uh, I, I, I'm no ultra marathoner. I'm no Denny. I'm not running... Up to 120, no, I'm kidding. No, 100, 100, <laughs> 100 yes. max. Still, that's probably yeah. way more than my three-year, five-year uh, running average. But uh, no, yeah, I got we got out there this year, and I'll, I'll go back in last year too. But uh, I, I did end up missing. But there's some nerves that came into play, and uh, you know, trying to be as conditioned as uh, as he is um, definitely was a factor. And man, I, I held that draw longer than I've ever had to hold a draw back before, and. It was tough. I, I I put it on the wrong pin, unfortunately. But last year I did make success, and uh, we got it hogged down. And you know I shot from a stationary position up in a stand, which I think helped me because I was still working through some of those basics of just learning how to you know shoot at the target normally. And I was really focused on on making proper technique. And um, so this year though, you held longer than you ever held. Yep. And you had the wrong pin on there. I did. Well, this. I don't know if it was me just putting on the wrong pin or the fact that my lead arm was just going all over the place trying to catch my breath and he's breathing down behind me with a camera. But <laughs> but you, you know what's awesome about that? From my own uh, experience of being in that position, everything. Because you will learn and it will be seared into your head every single one of those yeah. lessons. And just like you, you and I were talking about earlier about being in those stressful situations, if you can put yourself in those positions, you actually learn how to deal with them and manage that stress to a, you know, a greater degree. And so, I mean, there's a lot of validity yeah. to that. If I have one advantage from my old job, we used to do stress tests. I mean, I've put magazines and guns backwards. I have 
dropped magazines. I have thrown shot. I have I have been an asshole in almost every moment that counts. And you, what happens is you learn from those moments because it, for me at least, it hurts so bad that you never wanted to have it repeat itself again. So you learn from those mistakes. But the only reason you can learn from them is because you experience them. If you don't experience them. I think, in my opinion at least, it's very easy to get yourself into a situation where you think you're ready for it and you're not. Mm -hmm. And then when you crumble, which again has happened to me in archery as well, I like to define myself uh, in archery by my failures, not my successes, because there's more of those than the uh, successes. But those those are where you learn the actual lessons from. And Absolutely. that's the only advantage that I have. From Like a lot of things from the military make sense in the hunting world, but actually the vast majority of them do not, but I'm very, I feel comfortable being in that environment where Dudley's over my shoulder and all he says is make a good shot. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's I usually the cue that I get from him. He's like, Hey, make a good shot. Go up the front arm. And that, that's the biggest thing that I fear when I go up next to him is like, I just want to make sure he knows that I listened to what he said and made sure I did it. And that's that more, more so than making that shot. I'm just thinking back, okay, what did he teach me? And I'm following yeah. through is I'm on the right pin or am I, you know, am I fixing the right spot, whatever it is. And, um, that that's probably more of it to be quite honest. And I honestly, it comes down to, you know, repetition and practice, but what sucks um, is you'll learn more from your failures than your success. Absolutely. Yeah. But we got tomorrow, so we'll, we'll make it right. <laughs> I'm out of here tomorrow. I'm out of here tomorrow. I don't know. Midday. Oh, okay. oh we'll go out at dawn. We're good. Bad. We can go at dawn, dawn for sure. I'm still pissed that I didn't get a right release session. You bastard. <laughs> He'll mail you one. Good things come to those who wait. <laughs> Denny, you're an amazing man with words of wisdom that uh, kind of come in from left field. Has anything been said that you think uh, we should expand on? Not at all. Just uh, just keep hunting alive. Um, it, it, it builds better people. Uh, I'll share something that happened uh, t to me today. Uh, my wife uh, gave me a, the blessing to uh, buy a duck hunting club, uh, buy into a duck hunting club. And it included... Uh, a two-person share and uh, a, a trailer a cabin and uh, I, I went and looked at it about a week ago and I, I didn't really want to spend the money and then I came out here and I was with the guys and I said this is what it's all about it's about being with your friends being with your kids and uh, it's just a great experience so, so thank you for having us out and the one thing that that I'll share is just I need to share this with my kids because my kids n need to understand what what hunting's all about and the camaraderie that that you have at hunt camp that is different than anything else. Um, being on a, a, a sports team, I'm sure being uh, in special operations is Retired. probably sim similar. Retired. <laughs> but hunting camp is is like no other and. Uh, by her saying give, give me the thumbs up on that um i know that my kids are going to enjoy hunting camp i know that they're going to grow up with the understanding of uh, of what it means to to go out and, and experience the outdoors so uh that's the only thing i could pass along my my dad did it for me um i think it made me a better person and hopefully uh i can do it for my kids that's right on the money and actually 
for any of you guys out there that sometimes struggle with um, sometimes it gets hard to to be able to teach nowadays especially I don't know if I don't want this to come out wrong but sometimes it gets tough to teach things to teach your kids the grit that a lot of guys want to teach their kids because that's just what we what we feel and what we want to do and I think a lot of I think each generation that's older than us probably had it a little bit harder than us. And you want to find a way to to teach some of those, I guess, men's responsibilities or that grit that was taught to you, but in, in the same way you're trying to do it to a way that you keep the whole family happy. I guess that's a politically correct way to, to say it. And I found that the outdoors is the place where you don't have to have so many filters because if you make mistakes you can say why if things don't work out you can say why and i think that even the youngest of kids will take it in make adjustments make changes and be better i mean i look at i look at my son that you know went on an alligator hunt at, you know, 10 years old for his first ever hunt. And, um, you know, everyone saw the success of that, but there was also several attempts before that that didn't work out. And you were able to say, okay, you didn't get one and this is why. And he didn't say, well, I really wanted one or can I have one anyway? That option isn't there anymore. It's, that didn't work out here's what you did wrong here's what you need to do next time and quickly as we do as people we say okay we're going to make those adjustments and i can tell you most of my most of my determination most of my grit it it never came from things that i learned from home it came from things where i was in a sleeping bag in a cabin where no one started the fire and I was freezing to death and I was debating, should I piss in this bag just to get warm or should I get up and actually yes. start a fire or yes to both. And then when you realize, okay, there, <laughs> I actually got out of my sleeping bag. Now I'm even colder and there's no wood in this freaking box for me to start a fire. Why is that? Oh, I didn't cut any wood. And the guy that started the fire in the evening was the guy that cut the wood thinking, okay, I cut this wood. I'm going to be warm right now. But if anyone else didn't do work in camp, they're going to be cold in the morning. So then you realize, okay, if I cut some, some wood today while I have some downtime, I'm going to put it in this box on the side of the room. And then in the morning when I get up and I'm freezing and the rest of the guys are freezing, I'm going to be able to start a fire and everyone's going to be like, Hey dude, thanks for starting that fire. I'm going to, put some coffee on and the only place that really I got that put to me that clear was in the outdoors that's the reality of it it's funny um, for whatever reason the last few weeks at some pretty big tournaments it's gotten back to me that there's been a lot of newer archers that are in the competitive field that um, you know they've made some comments like you know i don't get why why dudley has such a strong following because 
you know, he hasn't competed as much as us. He hasn't won as many championships as us. And honestly, I don't feel like I've ever claimed that I have. For the longest time, I didn't even want to put my titles out in public because I don't want my titles to define who I am. I want what I give back to the sport to define who I am. And, you know, I feel like failure is in our DNA and part of nature is adaptation. And anything in nature, you know, my son's trying to, um, he's in school right now to be a vet. So he's in biology, he's in chemistry. So he, you know, he just shares with me a lot about how things just, in life and in nature evolve and change and how animals or plants naturally adapt so that they can survive. And it's no different than humans. When we fail, we adapt. If we're not failing, then we're stagnant and something else is adapting ahead of us. And that's just, that's just how the world goes, man. And if you're wanting to try to balance that out to make things fair, then feel bad for you. It was good knowing you. Fair is an awesome place in northern Idaho that has a carousel <laughs> and popcorn. <laughs> well, we, got, we got to talk about Traeger at least oh yeah. a little bit. Traeger's one of my favorite people. Honestly, it's one of my favorite people to be affiliated with because, one, you've got to know their back, you know, some of their background. Yep. You've got to know some of the people. There's a true genuine passion to the outdoors, which I think if you're listening to this podcast, I know you like, you probably like hunting. Um, I probably, I think you probably like the outdoors, but there's a lot of people that are in the outdoor business because it's a business and it's an opportunity for them to make money. But then there's also people that are in this category because it's something that like Denny said, he feels like it really changed his life because his dad took him out and did that for him back at an early age. And when you're part of a company that the true nucleus of that company is someone that has that passion to where, um, and today we actually did a, I was part of a Traeger commercial, which I'm very grateful for. Um, it's very humbling, but Denny was able to come out and say, Hey, I know the producers kind of had you, you know, kind of were getting you to say this, but he's like, John, can you talk a little bit more about this? Because this is truly who we are as hunters. And he wasn't speaking on behalf of Traeger. Denny was genuinely concerned that he wanted the heart of who I am and who all of you are that are listening he wanted that point to come across to the people that were watching these commercials or these info commercials. And I mean, that's really, really commendable because a lot of people don't look at it that way. It's all about what's gonna, what's just gonna sell product. But in reality, you were more concerned about me staying true to who I was. And I think true to who you are, um, which I think is what is most clear to the people that are legitimate, hardcore, passionate bow hunters. Thank you. In all honesty, um, 
when I came to Traeger, I came to Traeger because I wanted to be more connected with the hunting industry. Um, I, I learned something a few years ago. Uh, I, fortunately, Utah's got a great outdoor community. We have great ski and snowboard brands. We also have great hunting brands that are located there. And uh, <clears throat> I'm fortunate. I work with a couple great companies or become friends with a couple great companies. Uh, Dusty from, from SPG Signature Products Group and uh, Travis Hall from, from Browning uh, Firearms. When I first met both of them, um, especially Travis, he, he shared with me, he said, Denny, um, I love Traeger because you guys can, can really talk to uh, a, a big audience and you, you can share your story. Browning, we have a much harder time sharing our story because as a hunter, you know, a, a good successful hunt and, ends in a kill. And we just struggle with marketing our brand when when it ends with 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 a harvest. And the unique thing, the, the, uh, a light went off between kind of the two of us. And all of a sudden, for the first time, um, I, I think that that the, the value that that Traeger adds, if there's any value to to the hunting community, is that. Now hunters can be proud of, of the harvest and talk about feeding their families, talk about you know not having gone to the supermarket to to purchase meat, and really being being providers. And the Traeger is just a tool that allows you to to cook that that harvested game better. But it's been kind of a cool experience to, to meet other people in the hunting community, whether it's you know there's some phenomenal hunters out there uh yourself uh ava shockey uh whitney um nikki boxler some people that that love to get out in the outdoors harvest game but but are equally as passionate about cooking and now you can be proud of your harvest and, and actually share that story and quite honestly a lot of the hunting community was afraid of of marketing their their story too much because it ends in a kill and now I just think that that Traeger kind of allows a lot of those companies to bring that full circle and just say, hey, it's a harvest. Uh, we, we take that animal and, and we process it and we cook it on a grill. And that's what that's what we feed our families with. That is the original farm to table movement. And, uh, you know, it's 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 not some hipster movement happening in, in Portland and in New York. This is what we do as a nation. And uh, that is the, the kind of interesting thing that, that, quite honestly, I learned, and I think the hunt, hunting industry in, in general has learned that uh, now we can, we can share our story because it's full, full circle. Today we did a, we, we were filming an info commercial, I guess, is that correct? Infomercial, technically. Is that technically? Okay. <laughs> um, and I was doing my best to, to portray my story and my passion to the outdoors and how it, how Traeger's made that probably um, a clear message and one that I'm really more proud of, more proud of to share. Um, but one thing that I didn't say today because I, we, you know, we had a producer, he was, this is just how TV works. You've got a producer, he's asking your questions and, you know they're they're kind of leading you into things that they want to come forward that you know and truthfully they're trying to bring out the things that they know that you like about the product 
the one thing that I didn't say, which actually I haven't even shared with you, was Traeger's, Traeger's completely changed my perspective on hunting. Because before I knew how to cook game to where I truly enjoyed it myself and was really, really proud to share it, um, now I actually... I schedule and I try to plan hunts around things that will be challenging for me to grill versus before I did things and scheduled hunts around things that were challenging for me to kill. So it's, it's like a hundred percent of polar opposite. You know, I wanted I really wanted to go to France and I wanted to shoot a chamois because I had never cooked one. It's not because I had That's never shot me. one. That's true. And Tyler will, you know, Tyler can tell you about this, but as soon as we were talking about booking that hunt, I was saying, can we get a Traeger into the French Alps, even if I have to run it on a generator? Because I want to cook a chamois from the snow on the pellets like i want and i wanted to do it, it in a way that i haven't seen how'd you end up there it's this guy over here okay i mean I, i've had the pleasure of working with him for a better part of the decade now and uh got my got my way in there somehow and uh just want to work hard and do good stuff with him so hey, I'll- I'll, I'll share. Uh, our boss, we, we share a common boss, a uh, guy by the name of Jeremy Andrus. Uh, he, he believes in culture over anything else. You hire the right people, and then you figure out a, a role for them. Uh, I worked with Tyler for five, six years at, at Skull Candy, a headphone brand. Uh, I left to work with Jeremy at Traeger and... I didn't have an opportunity for Tyler. Tyler called me up and said, hey, I went to work for a company that I thought was was going to be in the hunting industry. Uh, I, 80% of our revenue comes from Cabela's, Bass Pro, and, and uh, retailers in the outdoor industry. We have a new CEO. She wants to take the business in a different direction. I'm nervous that you know I'm not gonna have an opportunity going forward. Is there anything at Traeger? And I, I walked in the next day into work, and I said, "Jeremy, uh, I don't have an open rec. Uh, I, I, I don't. I'm not supposed to be hiring anybody right now, but Tyler's one of the best people I've ever worked with. Uh, the guy's just phenomenally talented. Anything you give the guy, the guy absolutely destroys it and, and goes above and beyond. And." Uh, t- Jeremy looked at me and said, let's bring him on board. Uh, he came on board. I gave him three projects. Uh, one was a product project in, in pellets. One was a marketing role in, in, in the outdoor industry. And I forget what I, the I third one was. I did sauces and rubs, too. Oh, in sauces <laughs> and rubs. He's good at he literally picked up things that I wanted Talking to own and just didn't have the have the time and energy to do. And the guy just crushed it. So, uh Tyler's absolutely phenomenal. Um, loves the outdoors, loves the space, and he couldn't be more perfect for the company. Man, I mean, it, it, there's something about cooking with the wood. I mean, and, and the classic true barbecue guys can know this when they're sitting there burning logs, this and that. 
and they can tell you that it tastes good no matter what but what they don't tell you is how much effort goes into it and the thing i think that's so special about traeger is the fact that it literally takes all the guesswork out of it you're cooking with the same same flavor woods that you're using in your stick burner your offset stove but you are literally saving less the effort. I mean, if you can turn on your oven, you can turn on a Schrager and you'll become, and, and Duds is a great testament to this, but you literally will become- I am actually. Yeah, he is. As dumb as I am. Yeah. It actually bothers me how good you are at cooking. It, it literally, you, you, you can be an expert in a matter of minutes. And it, it's as simple as that. I was an expert in two days and I literally do nothing but shoot a bow. For you, you never even told a story Just about how you got into a Schrager. That's a good story actually, Andy's. Traeger purchase. Andy does have a good Traeger purchase yeah. story. So I moved into Montana July 1st of last year, 2017. July 2nd, I went into Cabela's and bought a Traeger. I think that grill was, what, seven? 700 bucks. So Jamie was not super stoked <laughs> to pick a term that would tread lightly. But the first meal that I ever made was hamburgers. And I smoked them for an hour, and then I cooked them, and she took a bite. And she said, that thing's good here. And that's <laughs> the best endorsement you could ever get. It's, uh, and from there... Once you taste the difference... It's, it's, dude, it's from there, like, that was... It was the I literally took the charcoal barbecue, and I think I threw it in the street and hoped that the garbage <laughs> people picked it up. It was terrible. Yeah, How quick did you get good at it? I'm well. I'm waiting for that part. It's been a year. <laughs> it's uh, it's actually hard to mess up. Yeah. It's hard to mess up. The one thing though is that I have a, a fridge full of wild game. The reason I wanted to bow hunt one one of the reasons I wanted to bow hunt is I wanted to detach from the economical perspective of uh, buying game. So I was able to do that. My my freezer is super full. But what I've come to understand is the sweet spot for being perfectly cooked for a wild animal and being perfectly overcooked for wild animal is about three minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah and I'm not super good at engaging that. <laughs> so I've overdone it many a time, and that doesn't matter if it's on a Traeger grill or a charcoal grill in your oven. I would say, just to your point, I mean, if you've got a freezer of wild game at home, that's, that's where the Traeger really shines is because... You know, with that meat being so lean and so wholesome that you don't want to overcook it. You don't want to kill it twice in a sense. And so with the indirect heat, with the wood flavoring, you're going to really be able to seal that moisture in and you're going to make sure that you taste the, the true value of the game, but a little bit added of it. And I think wild game is one of the things that uh, Traegers really shine on. The only tough part about Traeger is the price point. But all I will say to anybody who can hear this is, hey, we we, we cover the gamut. You know, you, you can get into a Traeger for as low as two ninety nine in some spots if you have a. Small, can you really? Yeah, if you get one of the small travel ones. It's perfect. I mean, you can cook for a family of four off that thing. I actually cook off a tailgater a lot. Tailgater is one of my favorite grills, yeah. without a doubt. Can I bring this over? Yeah. Swing it. One of the Denny wanted some too. <laughs> one of the things that I take pride in is I recognize. One, I recognize the value of when I'm I'm fortunate that some companies give me products that are they're high in product for me to represent it. But I also realize that there was a time where um, I grew up in the Mississippi Delta. I remember a time when you know we lived in an area where houses were cheap. It was 
and they were cheap because it was the area that flooded the most often. I've spent many times where I've actually sat on my roof when the Mississippi Delta was flooded and my ho- I literally was on my roof while my house would drain out. Um, so I recognize the value of dollar spent of the dollar yeah. i mean dollar earned i i definitely That's enjoy the luxuries but in the same sense i recognize that there there's a lot of people i probably hear the most people that listen to the podcast are truck drivers and every single time i drive 10 hours down here to oklahoma i think man there's guys busting their ass doing this every day and i couldn't do it and they're doing it and they're supporting their families for it and god bless you guys um and that's why every now and then i'll pick up you know my next bow build is actually a hoyt power max it's their price point bow and i'm gonna do a i'm actually gonna be doing my turkey hunt with hoyt's price point bow but even though i have an rx1 which is their most expensive model the reality is I want to make sure that all of you out there to where you're hunting on a budget and you know that this is, I want a Hoyt, but this is the one that I can afford. I want to make sure that you know that this is adequate for you and I can assure you that it is. So there's times where on all my elk hunts, I'm hunting with a tailgater. What's the, what's the retail on the tailgater? 449. 449. So it's literally two steps up from the price point mm-hmm. and it's very service the, the price point one's definitely a, a smaller unit the tailgater is, a, is a, an amazing grill yeah it actually is an amazing hunting. grill I, i've actually used it myself for the last four years i mean before i even started working at trader that was the first grill i finally just upgraded to a larger grill i finally just got the pro 22 but uh i've used it i've used a tailgater for the last four years as my sole grill in my house it's smaller you're limited on the amount of food you can cook for an event. But there's also pros to that. When we talk about a reverse sear, um, which we've talked about a lot of times on my podcast and Rogan's podcast, you know, a reverse sear is where you heat up a cast iron pan as hot as it can go and melt butter in there and you actually take your meat and you sear it at the end of the cook cycle. It's easiest to do on a tailgater because it's a smaller unit. It actually gets to that higher temperature faster. And you can, because it's a smaller unit, it changes temperature faster. So you can have the temperature high or you can have the temperature low and it, and it happens quicker. So um, I just, I really feel like, you know, with the Traeger, even though there are expensive models, and truthfully, there's benefits to the expensive model. Like I really, um, there's been times where I've, uh, for anyone listening to this podcast, that's heard multiple multiple uh, volume adjustments. That's Andy. And right now, if you just heard a big clunk, it's actually because your pl- your microphone is sitting on a plate of asparagus and shaved. Well, it's sitting on two balance, playing yeah. card decks, but you're also resting on a fork, a fork and yeah, and pork loin and a T-bone. Don't do it again. Okay, he's doing it. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, don't don't feel like you have to wait until you can afford the high end model, really of anything. We're not just talking about Traeger. Um, it's not the, it's not the gear. It's it's the really not it's the person that using it. You know, it's the person using it, and truthfully. There's a lot of really useful bells and whistles to the upper models. Um, and I, I have a Timberline, which thank you that I have one. Um, Agreed. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> but I also have I also have a tailgater, which I fold up and I take on elk trips. Thank you. Um, I also have a Pro Series. And... I really think that it it doesn't really matter if you're a person that truly just if you can open a book and read simple sentences you're gonna be a better you're gonna literally make better food because I was I was the grill if you do it right I was not I don't know that I'm an adolescent at cooking at best but I feel like I've I almost feel like Traeger boosted my confidence and my morale. Hey, man, are you kidding me? It's just, it's like me shooting the ready release, man. You... The pictures you're posting are like chef pictures. Dud's took a few lessons on plating and styling. He knows all about internal temperature. He can cook a piece of meat to perfection every time. I have to give Chad at Whiskey Vent Barbecue and DVQ and I don't know, several others. No, a uh, good. little leg up on thank you for just teaching me the really the basics of understanding temperature of meat and it's not about how long you cook it it's not about because sometimes you might want to cook stuff at a lower temperature for a longer time but it's really about what does the internal temperature of that meat get to and when it hits that point you're ready to rock Knocked and loaded. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.